because of a connection that I am going to make in the message today, I've decided to turn back, if you would, first, just to reread. We have preached on this passage before, but like I say, we're making a connection this morning in the message to the widow back in chapter 12. So if you would go back to chapter 12, I just want to read this quickly to remind you of this narrative. Chapter 12, starting in verse 41, starting in verse 41, chapter 12, verse 41 through 44. Listen carefully to the holy infallible word of God. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the off offering box, for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, if you would please turn over to chapter 14, and we will read verses 1 through 12, verses 1 through 12. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, and given to the poor, and they scolded her. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, and you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what, is, what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, then 
they sacrificed the Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask that your spirit would come upon us in a way of understanding beautifully the act of these two women for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand the joy that we have in serving the Christ who was anointed, anointed for burial as he went to the cross and also as the one who is resurrected. Bless our hearts this morning in Christ's name, amen. With respect to the Passion Week, Christ now moves from the Olivet Discourse that he shared with the four of his beloved disciples to the path of the cross. You will never understand the Christ who is presented in Mark's Gospel unless you see his wilderness pilgrim journey on earth, ending with his death and resurrection. Are you ready to return more directly to Christ's path to the cross for the sake of your, your participation in his redemptive activity? It is absolutely crucial for the state of our souls to be open to the Holy Spirit engaging us with the redemption that is only found, only found in Christ. In the first two verses of chapter 14, Mark puts us right back in the context of the events surrounding the Passion Week, the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. We are two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This means we are on the 12th day of the month of Nisan of the Jewish calendar, since Passover is on the 14th day of that month, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread on days 15 through 21. Scholars speculate about the amount of people in Jerusalem during this Passover celebration. Perhaps a realistic estimate is that the normal population of the city of Jerusalem was anywhere from 30,000 to 50,000. And the population of the pilgrims coming to the city is estimated between 180,000 and 250,000. Many will live outside the city in temporary camps during the festival. In this crowded situation, 
It is not uncommon that there will be unruly people, unstable gatherings. Hence, notice that Mark returns mentioning Christ's traditional nemesis in our text right before us, the chief priests and the scribes who are meeting in secret to discuss how to shrewdly and deceitfully arrest and kill Jesus. Verse 2 of our text. And what is their concern? Concerning the crowds that had gathered during Jesus' ministry, the Jewish priests and scribes need to be very careful not to put the crowd in an uproar during the feast. What is really interesting is that their deceitful, secretive action is clearly contrary to the Old Testament law, being the legislators, being the legislators of the Old Testament law, it seems their law does not apply to them. That's an interesting notion that seems to be popular among the elite. <laughs> the law does not apply to them. In fact, their action here places them under the judgmental curse of God. Here, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 24. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. In secret. Which is exactly what the chief priests and the scribes are doing with Christ. As we enter Mark's narrative more closely in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 14, I want to direct your attention to two aspects this morning, two aspects of Mark's structure here. First, there is the glorious connection between the sacrificial giving of two women the widow's offering in chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. It is why I read that. And the woman giving of herself in anointing Christ here in verses 3, three through 9 of our text. Then secondly, secondly, we want to look at this woman giving of herself in anointing Christ here in verses 3 through 9 which becomes a centerpiece within the Passover. A centerpiece within the Passover. So first, let us look at the glorious connection between the sacrificial giving of two women. The first woman in chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, is a widow who came to the temple and gave all she had into the offering box. The second woman, in chapter 14, 3 through 9, enters Simon the leper's house and anoints Jesus with a very costly ointment. Concerning the connection between these two godly women, let us focus upon Mark's theme of a servant 
a disciple, a follower of Christ in the context of the temple. As we noted in our message about the widow, she is pictured by Mark in Christ's ministry as a true disciple, denying self and taking up her cross in following Christ. She is the picture of losing her life for the sake of the gospel. In the 11th and 12th chapters where Mark presents to us the sacrilegious and blasphemous activities ingrained in the Jewish temple, where the authority of Christ is challenged by the tyrannical Jewish leadership, the widow, the widow is the picture of what true worship and life united with God is to look like as she waits for the coming of the Messiah. She lives her life totally dependent upon the grace of God and the care of her God. She is a faithful servant of God as the Old Testament temple corrupted by the Jewish leadership is about to be barren, destroyed. It is about to come to its end. The stones of the temple are about to be thrown down. Chapter 13, verse 2, from the words of our Christ, our Savior. So, as the widow is a positive picture that Christ leaves us concerning the Old Testament temple, in the Lord's providence, it is the woman, not a male disciple, that is going to initiate the new and final temple of God for his final days on earth. Christ has clearly revealed in the parable of the tenants in chapter 12 that he is the cornerstone of the new temple which the Lord God is going to reveal for the sake of the purifying sacred religious worship which will be so incredibly incredibly marvelous before every eye that truly believes in Christ. Both temples will share an end in this world. A type of destruction. The Old Testament Testament temple by God's judgment of the tribulation 1319 and Christ as temple who receives our judgment for our sin as the perfect temple sacrifice on the cross. But there's a real difference. There's quite a difference for Christ. Our sacred temple isn't there. His death in this world on the cross is not his end, his final end. It is not his final destruction, is it? Not at all. The woman who 
has been sent in the providence of God to Simon the leper's house to anoint Christ for his burial. That is also in the picture of the providence of God. And this anointing by virtue of her action will be proclaimed throughout the world as the gospel. And that gospel can only be gospel if the anointing for burial is also the preparation for Christ's resurrection. For I ask you, once again, as I've asked you to before, if we ask you the question, or somebody asks you the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What would you say? It's right here in the anointing by the woman. Paul summarizes it so well in 1 Corinthians 15. You may want to memorize this for the marketplace, for your own heart, for your own soul, for your own walk in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There is Paul's succinct summary of what the gospel is. The risen Christ is our temple sanctuary. Well, secondly, the woman giving of herself in anointing Christ in chapter 14, three through nine becomes the centerpiece within the Passover. Let us focus upon this woman with respect to how Mark is structuring her position around the Passover and the plot by the Jewish chief priests and scribes. As you look at verses 1 through 12, we notice this structure in Mark's narrative. If you have your outline before you, or if you do not, you look at it later on. I have pointed this outline in terms of the structure here. 14a, the Passover is coming. In terms of our text, 14.1b through 2, the Jewish leaders plot to arrest and kill Jesus. Then chapter 14, 3 through 9, the woman anoints Jesus for his burial. And then 14, 10, and 11, Judas provides the Jewish leaders a way to get to Jesus. And then 14, 12 and following, I read just the first verse to introduce you to this, the preparation for the Passover. Congregation, we have already placed before you the context of the Passover in our introduction this morning. 
Furthermore, Christ himself has clearly prophesied his ordained destiny in the hands of the Jewish leadership after Peter made his confession that Jesus is the Christ. We recall Christ's most vivid description of his path, his path in relationship to the Jewish priests and the scribes in Mark 10, verses 33 and 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise well by God's design this woman that appears here in verses 3 through 9 is placed right here in the context of the Passover and the plot to kill Jesus for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel, the good news that is found only in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are in Bethany, the Mount of Olives, where he has been staying for a week. On this occasion, he is in the house of Simon the leper, reclining at the table. Although most likely Simon is healed of his leprosy, Jesus is dining in the home of a man who, when he was a leper, would be considered to be unclean. There was another occasion that Mark tells us that Jesus was, very interesting phrase, reclined at table back in chapter 2. Verse 15, when he is reclining with tax collectors and sinners and the Jewish leaders were appalled at such action. Indeed, Jesus was sent into the world to do a physician's work upon those who are sick with sin. Chapter 2, verse 17. And here in our text, he is seated in Simon the leper's house. The self-righteous Jewish leadership have not invited him to their house. They have no need of a physician for their sin. Suddenly, a woman, a woman enters the house. She possesses a very expensive alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. This is extraordinary. What does she know about Jesus and his future? What is she comprehending, which the disciples seem not to be comprehending about Jesus's path to death? consistent with Mark's theme of accenting women of faith throughout his gospel, 
This woman remains unnamed so that we understand clearly that the focus of these women of faith are not upon themselves, but upon the object of their and our faith, our holy faith in Jesus Christ. The theme of discipleship, self-denial, is embodied, is embodied in these women of faith throughout Mark's gospel. Yes, this is a very expensive ointment. Even at this time in history, the nard native to a root in India is imported from India. It is a wonderful fragrance that is preserved best by being placed in an alabaster flask, a vase-like jar. From the Old Testament, we know that the anointing the head was common for a festivity, an occasion of fellowship. But to empty the entire jar upon a person's head which would cover the person's entire body, went beyond the normal protocol. So as she broke the flask and poured this sweet aroma upon Jesus from head to toe, some who were present were outraged. They were angry, verse 4. The Greek construct here suggests that these individuals, most likely some of the disciples, were openly hostile to her. In fact, during the Passover, it was customary to give gifts to the poor. So in anger, they raised their self-righteous voices and declared that the ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii, which is an equivalent, an equivalent of one year's wages and given to the poor. Let me ask you, let me ask you, what are your thoughts right now? Does their protest against the woman makes sense. After all, even Mark's gospel presents Christ as being sympathetic to the poor and the outcasts in society. Moreover, how may modern secular humanity deal with this passage? Most likely they will point out that Jesus lived in a patriarchal society in which Jesus is exalting a woman. Ah, that's good. That's good according to modern secular humanity. But at the same time, her action is being done to a man, serving a man. Oops, that's problematic. And on top of this issue, 
Why is Jesus not serving social justice to alleviate poverty among the poor? Especially when he says that he cares for the poor. Is Jesus a hypocrite? If you are only looking at this event with horizontal, earthly eyes, you are never going to see the spiritual, vertical, heavenly significance of this event for the sake of the gospel and your soul. On the horizontal earthly level, Jesus responds clearly that we will always have the poor in this world with us. And we can do good to them whenever we want. Verse 7 of our text. In fact, we know that caring for the poor is not an option for those who are in Christ's church. As a, as a disciple of Christ, John learned from him that caring for the poor is a command is a command for Christ's church. John tells us this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? John learned that from Jesus. He writes that. In his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 17. Christ is forceful against the women's antagonists. As you look at verse 6 of the text, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done. A beautiful thing. These disciples and we ourselves must see her actions on a whole different level. A profoundly religious level that is beyond the level of the earthly poor. A level that must comprehend that the eternal Son of God has condescended into the creation only, only for a little while. And while he is here, his mission is profoundly crucial for every, every human creature created in his image rich and poor, to be reconciled to their creator in heaven. If you are going to see your creator in heaven, then you'd better see her heavenly action, the heavenly action of this woman right now. Do not throw her action aside. 
It is absolutely crucial, Jesus says, for the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus says that she, this very woman, has just anointed his body prior to his burial. A ceremony usually performed by women at a grave site is now being performed by this woman prior to his burial. The smell of a, of a rottening corpse will not follow Jesus to the grave. Not at all. The sweet aroma of Christ's perfect sacrificial death for the sins of his elect children before his Father in heaven will accompany him to the cross and into the grave. No legs, no legs will be broken upon the body of our crucified Savior. He has been anointed head to toe as our perfect Messiah who is without one sin. Do you really want to understand the eternal heavenly blessing that the poor receive who live by faith and obey Christ's words that will never, never pass away? 13. 31. That blessing is extremely beneficial and rich. Christ's ministry, even in Mark, is a declaration of Mark's blessing upon the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is it registering? Congregation? Is it registering in your heart where you are in this event of Christ's anointing? The one who is eternally rich became poor so that we who are poor in spirit may become rich beyond the wealth, beyond the moth and dust of this world. Don't be missing this. Mark mentions nothing, nothing more about the widow who gave all she had in the offering box there in chapter 12. What happened to her? How did she even eat her next meal? She had no money. That's how the text leaves us. We are not told. We are not told in the narrative because she 
is a clear example for all of us to see that in Christ's poverty, she, she, the widow, became rich. Became rich. Remember, remember the connection between the widow and the woman anointing Jesus. Mark wants you to follow the widow's life of faithful discipleship into, into the new temple of Jesus Christ. The one who is anointed by the woman in Simon's house as her, the widow and ours heavenly temple who alone possesses the riches of eternal life. The widow is not left alone. She's not left alone. She has her eternal, anointed groom in heaven. She transcends to the heavenly feast of the Lamb of God who moves, that Lamb of God who moves from reclining at the table in Simon the leper's house to being the host at the table in heaven. Yes, our Lord. Our lamb was slain, slain as the physician for sick sinners who have now been reconciled to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no poverty for those who have the rich benefits of Christ's death, resurrection, applied to their hearts by the Holy Spirit. In Christ's death and resurrection, the religious center of your life, is it? Is it, is Christ's death and resurrection the center of your life? Are you daily dying to the poverty of your sin in order to live in the riches of eternal grace? Let's pray for help. O Spirit of the living God, enable us to live in the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see our lives to be totally dependent upon all things from him. And give us hearts that are totally fixed upon Christ 
as the one who has been anointed for us. We thank thee, O Lord, that we have the gospel, gospel proclaimed to us by such an act that this woman did that day, that Christ was prepared as a beautiful fragrance before the living God for our wretched sin. In Christ's name, we are glorified. Amen.